depending upon these sense organs, contact arises. If there were no sense organs, there would be no contact. If there were no body, there would be no sense organs. Right? It's all this chain of dependent origination. Dependent upon the body are the sense organs. Dependent upon the sense organs is the arising of contact. Okay, dependent upon contact arises feeling. Feeling being the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality in each moment of contact. Whenever we see something or hear or smell or taste or touch or have a mental, a mental idea, at every moment, dependent upon that contact, arises this feeling or quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither. No way to stop the feeling. If there is contact, feeling will arise. Here comes the crucial link. Dependent upon feeling arises craving. Okay? Because of pleasant feeling, we crave for the object, we desire it. If there were no feeling, if there was not this quality of pleasantness, there would be no craving, there would be no desire. It is feeling which conditions desire. Dependent upon desire is grasping or clinging at the object. Because we desire it, because we crave it, we cling and grasp. If there were no desire, there would be no clinging. Given desire, clinging and clinging and grasping arise. Because of clinging and grasping, we get involved in all sorts of karmic activities. All, all those volitions of mind which, which move us to act, conditioned by this clinging and grasping. So we create all kinds of karma in the, in the enacting of our clinging and grasping. Because of all these karmic forces which are being built up, again we take birth, following birth comes disease, old age, death. It's all just this chain of cause and effect. Given the body are the sense organs, given the sense organs there are contact. Given contact there's feeling, given feeling there's desire and craving. Given desire and craving there's, there's clinging and grasping. Given clinging and grasping there are all kinds of karmic <coughs> activities. Given the force, the power of that karma is birth, disease, old age and death. And so we go around and around and around. <coughs> How to break the link? There's nothing we can do about having a mind-body because it's there already. We find ourselves in that situation. The sense organs are there. Given the sense organs, contact will inevitably arise. With contact, automatically feeling is going to come. And just at that point is where, through the development of mindfulness, we can break this chain of dependent origination. If we are mindful, feeling does not necessarily give rise to craving, to desire. If we are mindful of the feelings as they arise, of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality, no longer are we mechanically running out this whole conditioning process of clinging and condemning. Rather, we're simply aware of feeling pleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. <coughs> Being very mindful, 
not identifying with the feeling, not taking the feeling to be self, not clinging to the pleasantness, not condemning the unpleasantness. And it's right at that point in this chain that we can, that we can cut it, we can break this conditioned, conditioned reaction which is driven on by ignorance. If instead of ignorance at that point between feeling and craving, we, we insert wisdom and mindfulness, so then we begin to decondition our minds. Right? No longer feeling leading to craving, but feeling leading to detachment, to wisdom, to mindfulness, to understanding. And that's the path to freedom. If we don't crave, there's no clinging. There's no grasping. If there's no clinging and grasping, there's none of that buildup of karmic force involved in that grasping. If there's no buildup of that karmic force, there is no longer rebirth. If there's no rebirth, there's not getting old, there's not disease, there's not death. So right at that point, when feeling arises, as it always will at every moment, it is a common mental factor, which means it's present in every moment of consciousness. If we are mindful, we stop this whole chain of conditioned relationship. Right? It's, the way, it's the way to freedom, to enlightenment, to liberation from this wheel that we find ourselves on. That's why mindfulness is at the very heart of all the spiritual teachings. The name of it does not matter. You can call it mindfulness or awareness or self-remembering or zazen or zochen in, in Tibetan. The word, the concept describing that state is completely irrelevant. It's the quality of mind which is moment to moment aware of what it is that's happening without clinging, without condemning, without identifying it as being self. Just observing the process, observing how everything arises and passes in it. Seeing that impermanence, experiencing that very deeply, is the first taste of freedom. Right? No, longer, no longer reacting very mechanically to what's happening, but just observing the flow. Observing this process of incessant chain, change without reaction. In the Diamond Sutra, there is one line which contains the essence of all teachings, of all teachings leading to liberation, leading to enlightenment. And that is, develop a mind which clings to naught. Develop a mind which does not cling to anything at all. A mind which does not cling to people, or situations, or objects, or the body, or states of mind, or consciousness itself. A mind which is free from any clinging whatsoever on any side. That's freedom in the moment, and leading to ultimate freedom. To release from this, this wheel of samsara. And the whole thrust of mindfulness training is exactly that development of mind moment to moment 
which is not grasping, not clinging at anything. To see everything as process arising and passing away. Are there any questions? Okay. In English, we use the word desire to cover very many different states. There are there are two different mental factors involved. One is the desire, which is involved with greed or clinging. Right. The other is a <coughs> mental factor which. In English, is also called desire, but is, is not involved with clinging, but rather the motivation or urge to do something. Right? That mental factor can operate without any clinging at all. In other words, the desire for enlightenment is to be understood in terms of the urge to do or the motivation, not in terms of clinging at an object, even enlightenment, because that's not how it happens. It's just this motivating force which arises because of a certain degree of wisdom and understanding. You understand how things are, so the motivation arises to get free. There's no clinging, no, no greed of mind involved in that. But it's confusing in English because we say desire for a sense object, for example, and desire to do something, desire for enlightenment. In English the word is the same, but they represent two very different factors of mind. get off the cycle, yes. you'll know. <laughs> but there'll be no you to know anything. <laughs> it's, it's... Imagine yourself with an excruciating toothache. Okay? All you can... Your whole being is consumed by the pain of that toothache. Day and night you can't sleep because of the pain of that, right? of that toothache. At some time, at one moment, all of a sudden the pain goes away. Complete absence of pain. The bliss of that absence of pain is released from the wheel. Okay. That's what we talked about uh, the last time. The, the cultivation of certain wholesome factors of mind, the spiritual faculties. And when they become predominant, they too should become objects of the meditation so that there is no attachment to them, even to the wholesome ones. We don't want to be attached to, to devotion or love or, or samadhi, concentration, or energy and effort or wisdom. <laughs> or mindfulness itself, because they are all impersonal factors. We don't want to be attached to perceiving things as beautiful or as not beautiful, 
merely to be aware of the ever-changing flow. Whenever you, whenever any state of mind becomes predominant, even the state of experiencing things richly, right, with fullness, that very state of mind should be made the object of meditation, because that too is impermanent. Not to cling to anything. Well, when you find something like that, it's your Dependent, like dependent upon pleasant feeling arises craving. Right? As long as we're unmindful of that pleasantness, that clinging is going to be there, even if it's two wholesome states. Right? Which is why we have to be very mindful at every moment of exactly what it is that's happening and the feeling involved. Oh, pleasant feeling. This is very nice. This is beautiful. Just watching that, because that very comment upon things is another part of the process. That also is not I or self. Right? The very evaluation that everything is beautiful and that this is really a, a good practice to be doing in the whole... That's just more mental commentary. To let go of everything. It gets more and more subtle as we clear out the gross level of attachment in our mind we begin to deal with very subtle, subtle attachments. Mm -hmm. Attachments to clear perception. Attachments to intelligence. Attachments to any kind, any kind of thing that gives us pleasure. It's the same kind of craving. And it's all impersonal. There's just one rule, and that's to be as mindful as possible. It will evolve. In the beginning, we miss a lot of things. When the mindfulness is strong, a lot more gets picked up. So it's just practice, and, and the idea is to be as aware as possible, to be as conscious and mindfulness as we can. Um, this is a question that's come up before, but I'm still very unsure of the difference between the witness that Brahma was talking about last night and the cultivation of mindfulness. Okay. It, it's exactly the same thing, except that is, there is witnessing without the witness. And that's why there was some uh, slight lack of clarity, I felt, last night in the statement that the witness also is some, some part of the ego. If there is the concept of witness, then it is, because it's identifying with the mindfulness. Right? It's taking the mindfulness to be self, so it becomes, it becomes an extension of the I thought. In fact, the witness does not exist. All that there is is this mental process of witnessing. Right? The mental process of mindfulness, which is not I and not self and not mind, and we should not identify with that, with that process. It's just a mental factor working in its own way. And then it is, it is completely free of any, of any self or ego orientation. It's just the mental factor of mindfulness functioning 
to know the object, to be aware of the object. Right? No self involved in it at all. So it's witnessing without a witness. Right? It's just witnessing going on. Does that clarify? When we sit about 15 or 20 minutes. That's not the. It's not uh, so important to try and figure out why things are happening, right? The the development of mindfulness involves being aware of what it is that's happening. If there's a tightness in the stomach, that should just be made the object of meditation. Just observe it. If there's some pre- predominant mental state involved, then that should be made the object of the mindfulness. Okay, that you can you can be with whatever predominant in the moment, and it can be back and forth. But it's not so useful to try and analyze why things arise, because the causes are very many and very subtle, and it could go back ten thousand lifetimes. <laughs> you know, there's no knowing what. There's no knowing the whole chain of cause and effect involved in a particular thing happening, and it's irrelevant. It's all we're interested in is being mindful of it and watching how it comes and goes. Right? If you're letting go of it, not identifying with it, it doesn't matter why it came. Right? So it just undercuts that whole level of analysis. It's just, it's just being with the process. Tai Chi is done mindfully, which is the whole the whole teaching is mindful movement. It's mindfulness. We're cultivating mindfulness on movement, so I don't see any difference at all. And I don't really see any difference between Tao Te Ching and Buddhism. As you begin to understand the process in yourself with a silent mind. Right, not not on the concept or intellectual level, but really experience the Dharma within yourself. Then you then you'll be able to relate very easily and very deeply to all the different expressions of the teachings. Right? You can read Taoism or Zen or Chinese or the Tibetan Buddhism or Southern Buddhism or a lot of the Hindu scriptures, and it will just be talking to you. It will be talking to your experience. But as as long as there's 
um, <coughs> the staying on the intellectual level, then you get into comparisons and distinctions and all, all academically, right? Because it's not, it's not coming, the understanding is not coming from your experience. So as you develop a sound of mind, you'll really be able to, to understand very deeply all these different, all these different expressions of the Dharma. It's many different fingers pointing at the same moon. And the idea is to look at the moon, not at the finger. If I know my information, I know that uh, I end up in very light reading or it seems to kind of almost light And what I've been doing instead, I think, is just forcing to do things like No, you shouldn't. But it seems like I'll reach a point where I'm almost not reading at all. It's okay. You can, when, when the, um, the breath gets very fine and very shallow, try to make the mind as fine. Just to, to be aware of that very fine breath. And that, that brings the, the mind to a much more subtle level. When the breathing is not apparent at all, be aware of, of the other things that are happening, like sensations in the body or your sitting position. If nothing is happening, like if you really lose body kinds of awareness, be aware of the knowing process. Just the fact that knowing is going on, right? even without an object, without an apparent object. The knowing, the consciousness itself, becomes the object of the meditation. Don't force the breathing because it's very tiring and it's not a breathing exercise. Okay? That happens quite commonly in the course of practice. Sometimes the breath gets very, very fine. But just let it be as it comes. exactly correct because um, only a fully enlightened being who has completely eradicated even the most subtle latent tendency towards ignorance towards not knowing only that being is not creating more karma right? everyone else is creating is creating karma Sometimes it's wholesome and sometimes it's unwholesome. Sometimes it's karma leading to liberation. Right? But it's still, it's still um, this cause and effect relationship happening. Karma is not to be understood in terms of the action. It's to be understood in terms of the mind behind it. There are three mental factors which are the root, the root factors of all unwholesome actions and their greed and hatred and delusion. And every, every mind moment, where there's one or another or combination of those three unwholesome factors, it's productive, it is the creation of bad karma, unwholesome karma, meaning that it brings painful results. Right? There's no one involved in it. It's all empty process, but greed, 
A moment of greed brings back pain. A moment of hatred brings back pain. A moment of delusion brings back pain. Right? It's just an impersonal cause and effect happening. Greed, hatred, delusion are the three unwholesome roots. Non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, which means non-greed is letting go, generosity, and not clinging. Non-hatred is friendliness, love, non-condemning. Right? Non-delusion means wisdom, being aware of what it is that's happening. Non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion are the three roots of all wholesome action. They bring back happiness. On, on whatever level is appropriate. It can be the happiness of sensual fulfillment. It can be the happiness of, of drama world. It can be the happiness of enlightenment. Right? Those three wholesome roots are the cause of, of the essence of all wholesome karma. So it does not have to do with primarily the action. It has to do with the state of mind involved in it. And whether those those unwholesome roots are present or the wholesome ones. It, it seems very much like doing something out of greed is going to eventually uh, cause you suffering. Mm -hmm. I don't hear in what you're saying uh, that sort of long-term, many lifetimes kind of build up of karma. In other words, it's sort of like it's going to come back soon. No, not the, the one one thing to keep in mind in thinking about karma is. The Buddha said there are four things which, when thought about too much, drive one crazy. That they are beyond the, the they are beyond the range of our of our thought process. One of them being the tracing of how karma works. It's such a subtle, complex interweaving of forces, you know, that there is no way for the ordinary mind to see how if you do an act here, five times five lifetimes later it's going to come back as a, you know, an accident or something. It, it's a very, very subtle, complex process happening. So it's not so fruitful to try and trace out those relationships. But in a more general way one can see, you know, as you become more and more aware and mindful, you can see that when you act out of greed, you can feel, if you're really aware of what happens in your life, you can see the sort of things that come back, you know, or hatred or delusion. <laughs> One is the the power of the Buddha mind. There's no way to to comprehend you know, the range of mind of the Buddha. The second is the range of a, of any mind which has attained the level of jhana, which is a high level of samadhi. Yeah. The, the whole the whole scope of mind uh, <coughs> dealing with high levels of samadhi and psychic power. See, I mean, when Ramdas tells all the, all these stories of what of what his guru and many other beings can do, all we can really do is hear what he's saying. You know, there's no way to understand with our mind that kind of power because. Our minds are not on that level of experience. So to think about it too much, how a person with this thought can, can either materialize things or destroy things, or can, cannot be thought about. And the third, uh, thinking about the beginning and end of the world. 
you know, of the universe. If you think too much about it, it's not so uh, therapeutic in the mind. <laughs> and karma. What did Buddha say about the, uh, if there were any, the beings who came before who originated the karma? Uh, you know what I mean? No. Were there any beings who existed before karma? I mean, who accrued the original karma that I'm living on? No, it's not. It, it's a it's a continuity of process. Each of us represent, at this moment, a certain point in this in this evolution of process, right? Which has no beginning, according to to what the Buddha said. In other words, not that things all of a sudden began out of nothing, but this wheel driven on by ignorance and desire has no beginning. It just beginnings. But it has it can have an end. Right? He taught the way off of the wheel, the ending of the process, the ending of the suffering. You know, the whole, the whole training is exactly to develop a very keen moment-to-moment awareness of living in the world. There's actually no such thing as living in the world or not in the world. We're in the world. <laughs> Whether you're in a cave in the mountains or you're here, uh, the mind-body process is going on. And the whole, the whole meditation is exactly living fully every moment. Let the Dharma unfold as it will. You know, let that purity of awareness, let it lead where it does. Because it's only, it's only strengthening that kind of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. All, of, all that we're giving up is, are unwholesome factors, negative factors. Okay? As long as we want anything, we're going to get it. So there's no fear about, about ending it too soon. You know, because as long as you want something, you're going to be around to experience it. This is, uh, in regards to the last question, this is what I experience is, uh, I expect to experience probably some of cycles of, uh, both maybe greater bliss and greater suffering as a result of starting on this path. I'm sure that there's phases, I wonder, I guess then, I'm asking you, are there phases you go through where you start looking around and things that you accepted and lived with somewhat comfortably, start, start maybe feeling compassion for people who seem so doing so much cleaning, condemning, and forgetting, and people that you care about, and and much of your previous life that you had been living was so filled with that, and that, that you don't feel at home there anymore. And, uh, and, and that's something you have to become mindful of, and accept and not cling, condemn, and forget. But there are cycles, aren't there, of an out-of-place feeling and then uh, you have to do some more and do kind of work that you don't have to do in the world or perhaps when you get back home or in the world. Yeah, yes, I do. 
fact, I'm curious about how you handled it. Is the same thing in your, um, you, mm. at some point you were not in the mindful of the fact that you got into it and then you came back and you went to India and did that. Does that produce great changes? It makes relating to people much easier because the whole, the whole uh, development of mindfulness is a very non-judgmental state. And when we stop judging ourselves, then automatically that whole process of judging others gets less and less and less. And you see that you can relate to everyone, right? Whether they're practicing mindfulness or not practicing mindfulness, if there's no judging going on, then there's a very easy, simple relationship, right, that happens. And depending on circumstances and, <coughs> and one's own, you know, whatever you happen to be doing at the time, will dictate where you're living and with whom. But the, the quality of the relating to people gets very, very easy. Non-judging is so nice. <laughs> and one interesting exercise, which I found super helpful, right, which you can experiment with. As I was first getting involved, you know, with this, with this kind of training, I sort of resolved that I was not going to get involved in talking about other people. Right? If I'm talking to someone, not to, not to engage in conversation about a third or fourth or fifth person. Right? And I was just amazed that 90% of the speech fell away. And the mind got very light, you know, because in all that kind of talking about other people is a very ingrained judging process, right? And as soon as you just cut off that whole expression of it, you find the mind very much free of that, of that judgment, judgment level. And you just might experiment, you know, and see what it does for your mind when you stop talking about other people. Which does not serve any purpose anyway. It's completely useless talk. Right? And I, just as, as a further suggestion, you might think, well, I'll just say nice things about other people. <laughs> you know, I won't say the bad things. But I tried that. And it's very easy to slip back into the old <laughs> habits, you know. So it's really good just to cut off that whole, that whole realm of useless speech. And you'll find your mind getting very, very light and relating to people much more easily because we carry around a lot of below the awareness threshold guilt of having said something and, oh, maybe that person is going to find out, you know. We're carrying it around with us. And it just eliminates that whole heaviness and darkness of mind. It's quite an interesting thing to do. And you'll see how difficult it is, how, how habituated we are to that kind of talk. Right. The whole training is not to judge what's going on inside. Right? Not clinging, not condemning, not evaluating, not commenting upon, not choosing, just being aware. Right? If judgment starts happening, the very judgment should be the object of meditation, not to identify with the judging. So you just see that as part of the process, and it comes and goes very quickly then. 
As the mindfulness develops and gets more and more finely tuned to what's happening in the mind and body, you will, you will become free of that. Because the whole training is exactly in not judging, in being aware of what's happening without evaluating it. There are two different kinds of meditation heads. One is the development of samadhi and one is the development of mindfulness. The development of samadhi or concentration requires very special circumstances. Otherwise you're fighting, it's just fighting a lot of obstacles. Whereas you need a very quiet place and a very secluded place without disturbances, with nothing, with no obligations or responsibilities. So you can devote yourself to that development of one-pointedness of mind. That's the way to do that kind of meditation properly. Mindfulness means just being aware of what it is that's happening moment to moment. There is no time at all when mindfulness is inappropriate. Because it just, it's not doing anything, it's just being aware of what is already happening. The alternative to mindfulness is sleeping. It's a state of sleep. So there's no, there's no question about whether I'm ready to be mindful or, or where I should go to be mindful. It's starting right now from wherever we are and just cultivating that factor of awareness. Does that answer you? That can happen, that also is a, uh, very much expresses the, the care with which one has to undergo the concentration techniques, okay, because it's making the mind very powerful and suppressing a lot of the, the stuff that's in us. In that focusing on a single object, you're making the mind very strong, very one-pointed, but it's like holding down the... Without proper guidance, that can be very tricky. Mindfulness, mindfulness is, is a very interesting factor of mind because not only does it bring all the factors of enlightenment together, but it serves the function of balancing the mind. Right? It's keeping everything in balance. And that's why there's no, uh, there's no danger involved in its cultivation. It's, it's sort of a self-regulating things come up because we're not choosing the object, right? We're just sitting back and watching what's happening. It's all coming as part of a very natural flow. And the mindfulness keeps, keeps our mind in a state of balance with regard to it. So we go to different levels of mind progressively. As the mindfulness increases, we're able to deal with deeper and deeper stuff within us. But it's a, it's a very balancing attitude. 
I might also add in doing intensive work, you know, where you're where you're cultivating in, like all day long in a retreat, it's very helpful to have a teacher. You know, because then it is getting very intense and a lot of things are coming and it's very easy to back oneself into a corner. Okay? And a teacher can be a very big help in that kind of intensive practice. It's going to be two, three-hour sessions, or two and a half-hour sessions a week. It's going to be an hour talk, approximately, an hour discussion, and an hour meditation. The meditation instruction will be just the same as it has been this. People who have done this can just continue. The talks will cover uh, a, a more systematic presentation of some of the things we've touched upon. Like some of the theory and the psychology involved in the meditation experience. Is it just going to be a continuation? No, we're going to... You know it, this is it. You know, it's to be mindful of everything that happens. <laughs> there's, not, there's, nothing, there's nothing more. It's just developing it. It's cultivating it so it gets finer and finer. But I think a lot of people will be taking it who have not been in this group. So we're going to just start the meditation instruction again. Right, it's in the real It's meeting from nine to eleven thirty in the morning. The two sections. Tuesday and Friday and one section is Monday and Thursday. Are you gonna in that course you're going to go a couple more of the traditional Buddhist terminology like say Right, right. We're going to do the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And but always primarily relating it to the experience. Because I'm not, I don't think the academic discussion of it is profitable. Yeah. There are a couple. You can get, they have at the uh, course outline. At the a very good book describing the details of this practice, right? just the technique, what to do, is called Practical Insight Meditation. They did have it here. It's in the library. Right. I think they sold out, but it'll be coming. There'll probably be more. That's a very good book on the technique, right? Just practical insight meditation. Mahasi Sayadaw, who is my teacher's teacher in Burma, who is a very famous meditation master. And he's the one who sort of reintroduced this whole system of mindfulness training you know, in Burma. Uh, one thing about that book, it's divided into two sections one on the basic practice and one section on the progressive stages that you go through. It's not so helpful to get too involved in the part of the progressive stages because then the mind just starts thinking about what's going to happen. Right? You might, if you're interested, you might just like skim through it to get an idea, but 
don't don't get too involved in it because it will be a hindrance in the practice. Uh, another book is called The Power of Mindfulness, which is in that same series. And it's a nice little essay by a German monk in Ceylon who has been, been a monk for many, many years. Uh, and he underwent this kind of training and has written a lot. And it's just a, it's an essay, really, on what mindfulness <coughs> means and how it's applied. And The Heart of Buddhist Meditation is another good book. And there's a whole beautiful Zen literature and Taoist literature, you know, which is very beautifully expressed Dharma. That little book, that, that third patriarch, that's all one needs to know. You know, it's all there. Any other questions? Um, before, when you were talking about the stopping and gossip about people, um, is the stage in that acting differently toward them so that uh, you don't build up a reservoir of hatred and if you're mindful, if you're aware, you will see that the behavior is altered. You know, it flows out of the awareness rather than as, as under such programming oneself. Because that can create attention. You know, if you're, if you're cultivating this growing awareness, you will see that automatically your behavior alters. And also the, the non-gossip lightens the mind to a point where you are no longer judging. It's a very accepting state of mind. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
<laughs> Deconditioning the mind from that concept, not identifying the things. But in the beginning, there are lots of gaps, and you get we get to a lot. But the more you practice, the more mindful you get, the more you're aware, and not identifying, just letting go. The pain, the reaction, the comment on the reaction, you just drive with everything that's happening, you know, without getting involved. So if you want to learn to play the piano, you have to sit down and practice. And it's been, in the beginning, it's going to take great effort. That's that whole model that, you know, that I, I shed in like I was you know, being raised in America, putting it off until later, because then, then you have it. And just wanting to live in the moment. But you see the contradictions that I'm I know it's on the thought level, but this is, this is, I've been going through it for a couple of days, and I want to see you say that. That wanting to live in the moment, I don't want to put it off anymore. Uh, but, but there's effort, this effort, you know, you're talking about playing the piano later. Effort to, no, no, it's effort to live in the moment. That's the effort involved. Not the effort to achieve anything. The effort, the effort involved is the effort to stay in the moment. So that's why there's no, there's no concept. We're not going to stay in the moment without effort because we have been very conditioned to forget from it. Right? So the effort has to be in that deconditioning to to make the effort to be mindful right now. Not to it's not at all about what's going to happen. to be the way. Yeah. If you have a thought, oh, it's going to be really... You know, that thought is not you. It's just your thought. See, oh, it's going to be thinking, thinking, go away. And then you're like, oh, it's going to be great, and then you get along with thinking. It's so simple. You know? It takes that... It takes... <laughs> Is that 
that there is only a couple from San Francisco to the place. I, like, I don't know. You could answer me. You know what's already still there? As of about three or four days ago, there were about 10 or 12 places there. Since that time, some people have uh, asked me that. So at the moment, I'm just going You come to uh, various cities under the right circumstances, like for the session, a week or something. Um, how would arrangements be made? I looked in the bulletin for them to see if there was something. Um, if you just take my address. Where is it? What is it? Box 577. Uh-huh. South Oldford. South Oldford. Do you want to? Oldford. I don't even know. New York. Oh. 12779. 7779. Box 
city? Um, yeah, or in New York State or New Jersey, There are a group of people who have group cities, but the guy who's the just I know. Um, are you going to be here next session? No. He just moved to Boston. But th there is a group doing it who meets, I think, twice a week to have a group sitting. Uh -huh. um, could also go, there's a Dharma Dhaku in New York, which is interesting. Uh -huh. You know, which has group sitting. That would be a good job. Uh, and there's a, there's, I haven't been there, but I hit with a very nice uh, vendor, you know, where you can go and sit. Well, there are lots of things, you know. Everything comes up. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is just to be with it without moving to anything. 
to the door to find it. But not to condemn it either. Not it, it's nice, you know. I mean, it was a really nice experience. <laughs> yeah. And it's the thing of, of not, you know, wanting to kick ass or such another experience. That's not, you know, this, like that experience is just an experience. The wisdom is in seeing the component. Yeah. That's what's called there, not not the experience. But the insight into the component. Content of experience, the content does not at all reflect spiritual content. Not at all. And that's why there's, there's a big danger in thinking you have a far out experience of getting even higher. That does not mean anything. Because the development and progress of insight comes from a sharper and sharper awareness of the process, right? not of the content. But in that course of, of awareness of process, many things happen. You have very many experiences. But it's not the experience that's important, it's the awareness of that flow. I found myself looking at all the problems that's really important. And then, you know, just like this. In meditation retreats, intensive causes, it's incredible the number of people go through. People go flying around the room. Not, not necessarily in the air, but strong, strong vibrational causes that can literally lift people out of their seats. Many things, but it's just the element for yeah. There's nothing special about anything. That's that's Could I ask you your view of a psychedelic like LSD and its value for anybody? It all depends on the state of mind. During the you know, if, if you're mindful and aware and using it and using it. And it's okay. If it involves greed, hatred, or delusion, it's not so useful. It always comes back to mental factors. Would then your, the only use you would see to be valuable would be somebody who is going to be mindful as best he can during that time. I mean, that's about it. The, the problem with drugs is like there are times for certain people that there's tremendous power in it, right? Yeah. But not for all people, and not every time even for those who have power in it. So you never know, uh, right? You, you don't have control. Yeah. There's not so much control. <coughs> and like I, I myself had both kinds with it. There was just as, as <coughs> fine a clarity as possible, right? And other times when the mind was so heavy and dull, you mean in the mindful sense of having a dog? It wasn't so mindful. Uh -huh. I was really getting, you know, caught into it. And that's not so useful. It's just so, so losing yourself in the experience is a waste. Seriously. It's just like losing yourself without it. Without mm -hmm. okay. It's just another experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, it seems, you know, in talking, it's like, you know, there's always something to be mindful of. And isn't there a point when you just, like, you know, mindful of your mindfulness, like, where you just, like, let right, loose, right. you surrender the whole thing? Yeah. It starts to work, it starts to work pretty automatically. But there are some drugs which are really powerful. And I'm, I'm not sure at a, a Maharaji level, you know, can you take any trip? 
It's, a, it's, not, it's not inherent in the drug, but inherent in the mind. Uh, if you have cultivated mindfulness, then you will most likely be mindful. You know, when you smoke or take acid. If the mindfulness is weak, it's very unlikely you're going to be mindful. In other words, it, it's the mental factors you bring to the experience. Isn't it amplified where you are? You know, I mean, if you're ready to take that implication, it could be a blind mind, or it could be, even if it's negative things, that's what I like. Right. Right. This, almost everybody who came to India and got into meditation came via the root of drugs. So obviously it opens something up. Right? There comes a point when it's no longer useful. Right? And that is a very common experience. Almost everyone who got seriously into meditation found themselves just not smoking anymore. Because the smoking was no longer giving the same clarity it did because they were at a higher place. Right? So instead of being a high, it was now coming down. And that was, it was a very, very common experience. Many hundreds of people had exactly that same kind of pattern. So it just depends where one is at and what level, you know. Do you find that, um, well, there are certain situations that are conducive to mindfulness in certain situations in which harder. Uh, sitting is, is the easiest, I guess, to not do anything. Um, and let's say uh, it would be much harder, it would be a very complex, uh, multi-faceted job situation where there's a million things and pressures and this and that. And uh, something that might be conducive would be something very simple like sitting or walking or chanting. Do you find or do you recommend that one start seeing life in terms of uh, avoiding the situations that make it harder to be mindful and until you're ready for them? I would say when it's possible. Like the the Buddha gave sort of that uh, discourse to monks who asked where they should live, whether they should live in the village or the forest or by themselves or with people. And he said the only criterion is that situation which is conducive to mindfulness. And it does not matter. If you live in the forest and are thinking all the time about what you're going to do in the town, <laughs> it's useless. You know? So wherever the mind is staying centered and aware, that's, that's the situation which to live. But that has to be balanced with our life needs. You know, so it doesn't mean that one has to give up everything. You know? it's, yeah, it's just finding that balance for yourself. If you're in a situation that is really <coughs> difficult, almost impossible to be mindful, once you've had a taste of that state of quiet, it's unlikely that you'll want to remain in that kind of situation for very long. There may be a, a, you know, some powerful condition which keeps you in it for some period of time, but the direction is towards simple living. But I would, I would like everything unfold as it does, you know, rather than try to impose. Because as you practice, if you, if you practice every day, <coughs> and periodically do retreat, then you will, be, you will be deepening the awareness, deepening the whole mindfulness of the process. And that itself will become a directing force in your life without, without consciously deciding, well, if that's no good. It will just unfold. And that's a very mellow way of doing uh, like when you said you did the 
Exactly mindfulness. When you eat, you should be aware that you're eating. You shouldn't be thinking about things. So it's not self-consciousness between yourself. Okay. It's just processes. Not if there's real mindfulness, because mindfulness is not identifying with either the knowing or the object. It appears that way, you know, but act, the labeling itself is just another process. It's just this, it's just this jigsaw puzzle of process. That's all interrelated. In the beginning, we tend to identify with one aspect or another of this process, but as the mindfulness gets sharper, we we no longer identify with any part of it. But actually, the identifying itself is just part of the process. It's another piece in the puzzle. When you're on the thought level, on the concept level, you should be there. You're really concentrated on that level. Mm-hmm. That's how you gave the level that's presenting itself. Mm-hmm. One, my, one of my teacher's teacher was, um, he had four cabinet posts in the old government of Germany. It was an extraordinary, an extraordinary uh, career, you know, uh, busyness. Just incredible. And he was a very, very powerful, great meditation teacher. But when he was doing something, he did it completely. So he was extraordinarily efficient. You know? He just dealt with everything as it came up with a very undistracted mind. So it could be done. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.